Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back with the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series this week called The Beginning of Jesus' Passion with a message titled The Marriage Feast of the King's Son. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew 22, verses 1 to 14, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. The parable of the marriage feast of the king's son is one of the most dramatic parables Jesus ever told about events that were about to take place and why they were going to happen. This is a story of judgment on Israel and why it took place. Let's remember the previous two parables. In the parable of the two sons, a parable in which one did his father's bidding and the other did not, Jesus told a story of condemnation regarding the religious leaders of Israel. The point of that parable is that Jesus said the prostitutes and the tax collectors who were repenting of their sins and believing in him, they were entering the kingdom of heaven ahead of the religious leaders of Israel. That's amazing. Then second, Jesus told the parable of the tenants who would eventually conspire to kill the vineyard owner's only son. This is a parable of the history of the religious leaders in killing the prophets and then in a prediction that they were also going to kill Jesus, the son of the father. It was also a prophecy that judgment would fall on those religious leaders, those who led Israel, those who oversaw the worship in the temple. We come now to the third of these parables, and if you will, this one, that's the climax. This is a parable of a royal marriage on the invitations that are given. In Matthew 25, Jesus will tell another parable of a royal marriage, and we're going to need to see this invitation as an invitation to come and be a part of the eternal people of God. Jesus spoke often about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Both terms, they mean the same thing. The kingdom of heaven is the kingdom in which God rules and brings everything under his authority. The term can be used in a number of ways, but here, as Jesus uses it in this parable, He means the final phase of his kingdom when when evil is ultimately vanquished and the new heavens and the new earth are finally established. This is about the invitation to come and be a part of the eternal world to come. I'm going to divide this parable into three parts. Here now is the first. It's that part in which a group of people decide to reject the invitation and they prefer to turn down the eternal kingdom. And we're going to have to ask ourselves who these people are and what these things mean. But for now, let's just read the first part of the parable, Matthew 22, 1 to 7. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast, but they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Notice the kingdom of heaven is like a wedding feast. You know, anyone familiar with the New Testament will immediately think about Revelation 19, verse 9. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The fact that the kingdom to come is compared to a wedding feast in which invitations are sent out and accepted, that's a New Testament teaching. The wedding is the consummation of all things. The invitation are for those who have been called to be a part of the eternal kingdom. 
But in this case, that is in the case of the parable Jesus told, there are two invitations. The first one is given, but they would not come. Now, now clearly, the first invitation is the, is the call in the First Testament. Israel was called to walk in the ways of the Lord. And that calling came from the prophets, Moses, Samuel, Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, others. People wouldn't come. Now, in the previous parable, the one about the tenants, those people actually persecute some of the prophets and they kill others. But in this parable, it's simply about the people who won't come. They reject the message of the earlier prophets. They don't respond to the demands of the law of God. They don't conform to the message to repent and turn from their evil ways and live. Their answer is a flat no. We have no intention to come to the banquet. Then because the king is so long-suffering and so gracious, he sends out other servants and they go again to the people that are invited. Now, now remember, those that are invited are Israel. From the time of Abraham until the present, that is the time of Jesus, the invitation has been given to all the sons and daughters of Abraham. So who are the second group of servants that are more explicit in their call? They tell Israel that the, that the dinner is already prepared. The banquet is now ready. Now, here we get a vision of John the Baptist. He implores Israel to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We might also think of Jesus sending out the twelve. They go to all the villages of Israel. Matthew tells us that in Matthew chapter 10. They were to go out and proclaim the kingdom of heaven was at hand. And as they do, they were to drive out demons and heal the sick. But Jesus also said that there are those who would not respond. And his disciples were to turn and shake the dust off their feet and leave that town. Jesus went on to say that it would be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for those who rejected that invitation. That's exactly what we find in this parable. But here Jesus refers to two reactions. The first reaction comes from a group that pays no attention at all. They're busy with farms and businesses. They are, because of the good things they're getting in this life, just not interested in the good things of the life to come. They're indifferent to the claims of the kingdom. Now, of course, many of us are going to see this as no different than what's happening in our day. Making money, buying land and property, growing a business, partaking of the pleasures of this age. That's what attracts so many. Talk of an age to come. It's just not interesting. But now there's a second group. Notice they treat these servants shamefully. They beat them as well as kill some. I think in this part of the parable, Jesus is predicting what is yet to come. He may be referring to his own crucifixion here, along with the persecution and death of his followers. And we might remember that the stoning of Stephen caused great harm to the early church. See, at any rate, this is the parable of the great part of Israel that refuses the invitation to come to the eternal kingdom. And the response is that the king is angry. He sends his troops. They destroy those murderers and burn their city. Now, that's a reference to the destruction of Jerusalem. It happened in AD 70. And if you don't know that event, it's a decisive moment in the history of Israel. Josephus, a Jewish historian, recorded that event, and his records are quite accurate. See, the Roman commander Titus, under the orders of the emperor, destroyed the city. It's believed that more than one million Jews were killed in AD 70. It was a horror. It had not been the intention of the Romans to burn the temple, but sometimes in the fog of war, well, things just get out of hand. Josephus says that when the flame arose from the temple, a scream as poignant 
as the tragedy went up from the Jews, the building they had guarded so closely was now going to ruin. And Josephus writes, while the sanctuary was burning, neither pity for age nor respect for rank was shown. On the contrary, children and old men, laity and priests alike were massacred. And so the Roman emperor Vespasian, ordered that the entire city and the temple sanctuary be razed to the ground. And it's important for us who hear about these events to connect what happened here with Jesus' parable. This is judgment for refusing the king's invitation to his wedding banquet. When God called his people, he called them to be his holy nation, a people that would declare the praises of God to the world. Theirs also was the promise that God would bring the renewal of all things to be, that the curse of sin would be broken, that the eternal kingdom would come. That invitation was refused. Jesus' parable might have ended there, but he's not done. See, let's examine the second part of this parable. It's Matthew 22, 8 to 10. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. The king has a plan. It's unacceptable to him that the wedding banquet would be empty. And we who read this should be delighted by that news. It's not necessary that any more should have been invited to the banquet. We know that God doesn't require people in order to be happy. God's not an insufficient God who needs people to make up for a lack in himself. God needs nothing outside of himself. The love between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is fully sufficient. But God has chosen to fill his banqueting hall with those whom he has invited to his eternal kingdom. And furthermore, Paul would expand on that theme, and he'd use the image of a vine and branches. The natural olive branches, he says, were broken off so that wild olive branches might be grafted in. And when we read about that in this parable, that the king demands his servants now go to the most unlikely places. They're to go to the main roads where there would be a maximum amount of people and invite them as many as they could find. Of course, that doesn't mean that believing Israel is rejected but it does mean that the banqueting table looks different than people expected it to be. Every year, Back to the Bible works hard to bring you resources that engage your thoughts in the Bible. This month, we've created a very special book that we think will become part of a Christmas tradition for many families. It's our Laugh Again 12 Days of Christmas Stories, 12 of Phil Calloway's favorite Christmas stories, 12 readings from the Bible of the actual Christmas story, all designed to prepare our hearts for the occasion of Jesus' arrival. Use for your personal devotions around the dinner table or at night with the kids, perhaps before they go to bed. 12 Days of Christmas Stories is a full-color, fun, and thoughtful book that will engage both young and old in the real meaning of Christmas. So request your free copy during the month of November in preparation for the Christmas season as our Christmas gift to you. Just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Reading the second part of this parable all sounds wonderful until we come to verse 10. See, the servants of the king, who must be the apostles and others who came after them, evangelists, missionaries, along with others, 
who shared the good news, invited, and gathered many people. Verse 10, we find that they gathered in both the good and the bad alike. And we might wonder what it refers to. The bad can't refer to sinners. If that were what Jesus intended, it would have meant that there had been nobody at the banquet. You know, because the gospel is the gospel of grace. Christ died for unworthy people. Godly died for the ungodly. We have to assume that every one of us who are in Christ were rescued from the former futile way of life in which we lived. See, in that sense, we're all bad people. But when Jesus told this parable, he didn't want to give the impression that some in the kingdom of heaven were morally good and some were morally evil. Well, if not that, what's he referring to? I think the answer to the question has been addressed by Jesus in some of his other parables. So let's consider one of them, and I think it's going to shed a great deal of light on this for us. It's found in Matthew 13, 47 to 50. He said, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. See, in the present day, the reign of God is going to be characterized by the calling of a great many people. Let me put it in practical terms, and I might say, those who call Jesus Lord and enter into the local church are made up of those who are truly redeemed and regenerate and those who are not. We see that in our day. Someone once said to me, has there ever been a time in which there are so many scandals in the church? And my answer is, oh, yes, there certainly has. There have been plenty of times when the church has been plagued with scandals. In the end of the day, the matter is going to be sorted out, but, but not today. In the parable of the wheat and the tares, Jesus said that an enemy came and planted tares among the harvest, and it is so. And furthermore, I think it fair to say that the evangelical movement of today that there are a great many churches that are filled with many unregenerate people who have a form of godliness, but who don't have the new nature that's given to a child of God. Now, I know that here, the image of a banquet hall isn't sufficient. We might say in the present dispensation, we do find a great many people who call themselves followers of Jesus, but they're not. But how can the final wedding supper of the Lamb be filled with the bad? But here I think, we shouldn't push the image too far. The point that Jesus is making is that in the rush to get as many as possible into the wedding feast, a great many have alternative reasons for being there. It's like the dragnet. It pulls in unworthy people. Think of Christianity in the Middle Ages. The church was then corrupt. Her leaders were corrupt. Rome was corrupt. Many priests had specialized prostitutes just for them. Many bishops got to be bishops by paying money to political leaders as well as to wealthy bankers who gave them a loan to get the office of a bishop. I mean, that kind of thing not only happened, it was a disgrace. Church leadership was used to gain wealth and power, the good and the bad, sitting at the banquet hall awaiting entrance into the eternal kingdom. See, with that, we come to the final section of the parable, and I'm reading Matthew 22, 11 to 14. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to his attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called 
but few are chosen. See, the point here is not that there's only one guest that's like this. I mean, the point is the parable now focuses on one man, a person who's gotten in without a wedding garment. So it might be tempting at this point to wonder why this was a problem. I mean, after all, if these people were taken from, you know, all the main streets of the world and presumably a number of them are poor, it must have been quite possible for a person not to be able to afford a wedding garment. Or on the other hand, in the rush of things, he hasn't been able to purchase one. See, a great many possible solutions have been suggested to this problem. And I think, however, that Hendrickson offers the best solution. He says, it's obvious that the banquet is a banquet of bounty. The king has great wealth. It's also a royal banquet, and only the best clothes can be worn. But since the king's servants have gone out into the world and brought in a great many people, Hendrickson believes that under those circumstances, the lavish king would also have dressed the guests. Each guest would have been given the finest clothing to wear, clothing of royalty. Everything in the room, the greatness of the wedding table, the clothing of the guests brought honor to the king. And so everyone gets a robe, but this man, for reasons not given, hasn't put a robe on. Perhaps he didn't want it. Perhaps he was offended that his own clothes weren't considered good enough. Perhaps he was a defiant individual who wasn't going to let the king decide what was best for him. See, in that sense, this man's religion was one that catered to himself, didn't conform to what the king expected. I'm reminded of Revelation 19:6-8 when I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and the bride has made herself ready. It was granted her, given to her, to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. That's important, that we don't proof text Jesus' parable. He doesn't say that the clothing that was worn by the guests represents the righteous deeds of the saints. But I mean here only to point out that the idea that garments worn represents something, that's an idea that's there in the New Testament. Wedding guests to a banquet must dress in a prescribed manner. At any rate, this man has found himself in the seating area of the banquet. He's not dressed as demanded. And I've got to stop here and make application. See, we live in a day that many have called consumer-based Christianity. People or the consumer of Christianity will decide what Christianity is for him or for her. And they make the rules. They change the rules. They remake the rules. They clothe themselves in whatever clothing works best for them. They clothe themselves not in obedience to the king, but as a matter of their own tastes. In the parable Jesus told, the man is asked, how did you get in here? Without wearing the appropriate clothing, the man speechless, he thought his own rules were fine. He'd not considered that if it's the king's banquet, the king decides what the guests wear. And so the man is cast into outer darkness, into a place of judgment and of torment. It's an image of hell. And then comes the conclusion of all of this, an interesting, troubling, and difficult conclusion. For many are called, but few are chosen. The point of that should be clear. There is a gospel call something that theologians like to call a general call. It's an open invitation that's made by every evangelist. It's made in sincerity, with integrity. Anyone can come and be saved. All you have to do is respond. After all, what is holding you back? You want to hold on to your sins? Let them go. 
Let everything go. Come to Christ, for whoever comes to him will be accepted and welcome to his eternal kingdom. I say that this kind of an invitation is true and good, but it's also a general call. The evangelist doesn't know what's going to occur to everyone who answers yes. When Jesus told the parable of the four soils, he said that the kingdom of heaven was like a sower who went out to sow his seed. Some fell on hardened soil, it never penetrated, but some fell on rocky soil and some on thorny soil. It penetrated, but it didn't last. The cares of the world, the deceitfulness of wealth overwhelmed them and they fell away. In the final analysis, genuine salvation is a matter of sovereign grace. All of us who come to Christ and remain in him, never forsake him, carry on until the revelation of last things, we're gonna look back and we're gonna say it was grace and grace alone that carried me. I was chosen. And so Jesus told a parable. He's explained that the religious leaders of Israel have rejected the values of the kingdom and they were themselves rejected. But he's also explained that although the kingdom has gone out among the Gentiles and they were invited in, that if we the Gentiles behave as the religious leaders did in Jesus' day, we're gonna be treated no better than they were. For if we refuse to bow to the demands of the king and seek to establish our own religion as they did, we will see the same end that they received. That's a powerful warning, but it's also an invitation. Take off whatever clothing you have and accept the clothing of the king. Be seated at his banquet. What an invitation to come and live. Thanks for your message, John. Let me ask you, are there both pros and cons for applying a consumer strategy to how we do church today? Yeah, I suppose there's a benefit. I mean, I don't like the word consumer as much, but we need to uh, think of how we can speak a message that is understood by the people to whom we are preaching. I mean, we have to, you know, so package the message so that people can easily grasp what is meant for them and why that message is good news for them. I think we have to do that. Uh, The great con is that we change the message itself. You know, if people don't want to hear about sin, well, we won't talk about sin anymore. That's been the great criticism, you know, of that consumer-based message. So if we forget the gospel message, oh, woe to us, because this must not be forgotten. So I think that's the pro and the con. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, The Beginning of Jesus' Passion, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible Teaching you can trust. Do you have young adults in your life? Or perhaps you are a young adult and have questions on challenging topics about life and faith. Then be sure to check out In Doubt, the young adult ministry of Back to the Bible Canada. Each week, Endowed engages in an interview with a guest who is well-equipped to speak on a given topic faced by many young adults today. Topics such as medical assistance in dying, purity, social media, and parenting for young moms and dads, relevant subjects that provide biblical insight. Guests like Andy Steiger, Kyle Eidelman, Sarah Zilstra, and Matt Smethurst have all appeared on the podcast to share their expert advice with the young adult audience. So be sure to check it out or pass along the information to the young adults in your life. Just visit indoubt.ca, 
download the Indoubt podcast wherever you typically listen or call 1-800-663-2425 for more information.